transformation will happen organically. Um, it will push the space um, to be more inclusive, to be grounded, um, and to be a space where there's a space, you know, where people can uh, be their true authentic selves. I am so excited you're joining me today. We're joined by the co-founder and senior advisor of United We Dream, the largest immigrant youth-led network in the country. Christina Jimenez is a community organizer, strategist, and freedom fighter. Under Christina's leadership, United We Dream has grown to a powerful network of over 100 groups, 900,000 members, and a reach of 6 million people per month. After immigrating to New York from Ecuador with her family at the age of 13, Christina lived undocumented for 12 years. Today, Christina has been named one of the 100 most influential people in the world by Time Magazine and was awarded a MacArthur Genius Fellowship in 2017. As you hear our conversation, you'll know exactly why. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about the power of rage, collective mobilization, how we all have to actually do the work to understand the issues and build inclusive and diverse movements, and really centering those most impacted. Christina gives us strong examples, uh, strong lessons, really a blueprint for demanding dignity and reclaiming our humanity and voices. I really hope you enjoy this conversation. I hope you take from it um, the incredible work Christina's done and the incredible life she's lived and, and the compassionate leadership that she has modeled through her movement. This is At the Table with Dr. Ela Murabit. Now, for those of you who don't know me, I am a UN high-level commissioner on health, employment, and economic growth, one of 17 global UN sustainable development goal advocates. I am also a medical doctor and a women's rights champion and strategist. I have traveled the world and met people who are leaders in their own industries. And I've met people who have completely changed the game from names that we know to names that we don't. There are people who have championed inclusive security more than anything else. So At The Table is really a collection of in-depth conversations and interviews with leaders in all industries. It's looking at how we create systems and structures and communities and selves that really represent what we need in the world today. Now, it's been called At The Table because I think the single most important thing is for us to create and cultivate spaces. And this one is mine where I invite you to connect with and to learn from and to teach one another about the importance of inclusive leadership and making sure that when you are at any table, you are bringing somebody with you, an idea with you, a perspective with you that isn't already there. So thank you again for joining me. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you for listening and for being here. And please let me know, what does being at the table mean to you? And who are you bringing with you? Christina, it is such a pleasure to have you here today, and I am so excited we're getting to have this conversation. I've admired your work for so many years uh, and admired your leadership and and really have been in awe of what you've been able to do uh, and, and, and the movement that you've created and inspired. So my first question for you today is, how are you feeling? If you had to tell me in two words. I appreciate the question, um, and it can uh, be a really deep question these days uh, for all of us. So I really appreciate being in the conversation with you, and having a space to really, you know, check in with one another. I feel so much rage. Um, I am like enraged 
every day that there are more news about um, what's happening to people in our country, the number of deaths because of COVID and how that's impacting disproportionately Black, Latinx, uh, Brown immigrant, Indigenous communities. Um, you know, outrage about the recent presidential debate um, that we all witness. Um, and, you know, quite frankly, it reminded me of like meetings with white men and how they all uh, talk over one another. Um, and, um, you know, and, and many other things that we saw, like um, a complete refusal to condemn white supremacist, you know, I'm outraged at the uh, forced um, uh, medical uh, uh, treatments uh, and or sterilization uh, of immigrant women that are happening in detention camps. So I feel like, you know, I don't want to overwhelm um, <laughs> the people that are listening, but I'm sure that all of us have something that it's happening uh, on our day, in our day to day lives, um, whether it is because of the global pandemic um, and or for other reasons, uh, particularly in communities who are poor, who are people of color that are giving us just so much rage. And, mm -hmm. and I think it's important to talk about that rage. I don't think that we need to silence it. I don't think we need to uh, feel bad for it. You know, in fact, for me personally, um, and for the work that I do with uh, immigrant youth and families across the country, I know that that rage is fueling so much of our determination to change things and to do what we can um, whether that is making a phone call to a friend or our family members to show up to vote this election, or whether that is joining a, a local Black Lives Matter protest um, mm -hmm. in, in our communities. Um, so that's, you know, that's how I'm feeling. <laughs> how do you turn, because I think, I think that resonates with so many people, just a sense of kind of like rage and frustration. And um, I think... I think you almost begin to question how these systems have operated for so long um, with this kind of like incompetence and just like, it, it does, it blows my mind sometimes when I think about it. And my question for you then is how do you channel that rage into impact? Like you do incredible work. You, your work is hopeful and inspiring and exciting and, and you're very openly, and I'm very grateful for you for saying like, no, no, actually there's a lot of rage that fuels me. How do we, how do we do that? Hmm. You know, I think it's my personal experience, um, my lived experience uh, growing up as um, an undocumented immigrant in this country and experiencing, um, you know, as, a, as an immigrant and as a person of color, um, probably the worst often that this country has to offer, whether that is racial profiling, whether that is a state violence and, and or living in fear of deportation and you know being exploited because of your undocumented status. It, you know, all of that I experience always giving me a sense of both rage and a, and a deep sense of injustice. But when I became an organizer and I realized my own power uh, the power of my voice, but most importantly, the power that we have when we are in community together and in community taking action. You know, it is important and valuable if I make a phone call or if I write a letter or if I join a protest. 
it is more powerful uh, if uh, millions of us do the same thing. And through community organizing, when I became involved because of the deportation of many uh, young people that I knew in the early uh, 2000s, um, you know, as a result of September 11, many of us in our communities have started to witness uh, increased deportation and family separation and uh, targeting of Muslims and, and immigrants because we became, um, you know, suspects of uh, terrorism. Um, so, so all of that experience also gave me um, an entryway to experience what is the change, the transformational change that can happen when communities take action together. And, you know, I remember being, um, you know, maybe like my first year in college, uh, fighting the deportation of my, um, my friend at the time, who now is my partner in life, Walter, and you know, feeling like the most terrifying feeling that you may not be able to see a loved one again yeah, because yeah. of deportation. But then we came together with other young immigrants and allies and lawyers and advocates from across the country. We made phone calls, we pushed, um, the government at the time under President Bush to um, allow Walter to fight his case legally to stay here. And we were able to get him out of uh, jail and, um, and get you know, uh, legal support to fight his right to stay in the country. And experiences like that to me are what make me feel how my rage um, and my deep sense of injustice when turned into action, especially when it's done collectively, can actually make miracles happen, can bring change, can keep families together, can keep people like Walter here in the United States with his family. Um, and, you know, I've seen this in a small scale, like fighting a deportation case, but I've also experienced this in a bigger context where you know, we've fought with, we've, we have fought for the last years for justice and dignity for immigrants and uh, young immigrants have won campaigns across the country. Um, and, you know, including our biggest one um, with um, DACA, um, which is the program that protects young people from deportation. People like my own brother, Jonathan, who's 25 years old. And when I think of that, then, you know, I, I, I know that my rage, um, my anger, my frustration, and the deep sense of injustice that I feel in my heart can be channeled into action to bring change. And because I've experienced that change in community, I know that it's possible. So when you know that it's possible, I think that even in the most scariest of times, which I feel like we're in right now, um, I still have hope that we can um, that we can bring that change. I think it's incredible that you were able to turn that fear, you know, the fear of losing a loved one to deportation, you know, as an undocumented uh, immigrant yourself, um, that you were able to turn it into action and that it was so powerful and that it wasn't just action for yourself, but it was action for a collective, for a community that often didn't have people who would, who, who could channel that fear into action for, for obvious reasons. You know, I, I, you, you struck me when you said it was a miracle. And I once said um, to a colleague of mine that the work that we, you know, the work that a, a lot of human rights activists and, and champions do is magic. And she said to me, you know, I don't, 
um, her name is Jenna Amin. She's a 17-year-old activist. And she said, I don't like the term magic because it implies that it doesn't take work. It implies that it's something that just happens. It, it, it mystifies it for everybody else. I like when you talk about the work. I like when you talk about the energy. The, the, I like when you talk about what it actually meant to create this change. Because then younger generations, people listening can say, okay, I can do that too. So for you, what was, you know, was there one moment where you decided, okay, I'm going to commit myself to becoming an activist? on behalf of undocumented immigrants? Or was it more of a gradual process where you found yourself, you know, slowly becoming more and more engaged in the work? What was, what was the work for you? Mm -hmm. It was definitely a process. You know, I think that for um, many of us who are community organizers, or if you think yourself as an activist, I think it's so important to be um, humble about the fact that um, you know, many of us are not born woke um, and or with all of the awareness about all of the systems and, um, you know, a deep concepts like understanding why supremacy, systematic racism, anti-blackness and many other things. Um, and um, for many of us, you know, whether uh, you grow up in the U.S. or in other countries. I mean, why supremacy is so pervasive? Um, and, and we're socialized in a way where we don't get to pick up the or easily understand or identify why many of our communities are facing the kind of injustices that we are. So for me, I think it's important to be authentic for myself about the fact that I wasn't woke. Um, I, I had a sense of right and wrong. But it was a process to um, understand more why we even have deportation. Why, um, you know, why police officers can do whatever they want without accountability, um, and um, who is benefiting from this? Who are making decisions? Who are the people making decisions on this? So it took some time, and I, you know, I always joke around. Um, particularly now with the younger activists and uh, younger folks that are joining um, our organization at United We Dream, uh, because I was actually very afraid and very um, much ashamed of being undocumented, so much that it took me a long time to share my story for the first time. And even when I decided to take that courageous step, I use a fake name. Um, I, I used to present myself as Sandra from Costa Rica, and I, uh, I did all of that because of the fear and shame of being out as an undocumented person in this country. Um, and, and I was also unsure about getting involved and taking action and advocating for myself and for my community because of that fear, because I wanted to protect my parents. I didn't want to put my family at risk. Mm -hmm. of deportation. Um, so I will say it was definitely a process. I always say that, you know, the joke that I say to young people is like, I was like in a dating process, like checking it out <laughs> and, you know, showing up to some meetings and showing up to some actions, but like not fully committed for the longer term and sort of wait and see attitude. And, but it was definitely when Walter got the tame. And I got that call. How old were you when that happened? 
Sorry. How old were you when that happened? Um, I was, um, I was probably like 23, um, around that time. And, you know, when I got that call at 3 a.m. in the morning from a friend telling me that Walter was detained, that he had been arrested in an Amtrak train um, because he was heading from New York to Chicago and Border Patrol agents had um, entered into the train and racially profiled all the men of color and asked, for their citizenship papers. Um, on the train? On the train, yes, in the train. Um, and so, you know, when that happened, like I and I went through the process of fighting um, and taking action with others so that Walter could stay, I, I made sure, like almost internally, like a commitment that I just did not want other people to go through what Walter's family went through, mm-hmm. what Walter went through himself, like, you know, terrifying to feel like you never, you don't know if you will ever get to see your family again. Um, and, and that I didn't want to have that feeling ever, that feeling that um, I always had to think about the safety of my parents when it came to deportation and that I had to always be fearful that I could lose a family member or a loved one to deportation. So that that was the moment that I moved from dating to um, making a longer, a longer term commitment and you know realizing that it wasn't just about Walter either uh, or me, that it, as I met more people and more people that we got to meet through our work in United We Dream, uh, like Marie Gonzalez, like Kamala Saheb and many others that have been uh, under the threat of deportation that, you know, realizing that this was much bigger than a handful of people and actually about a systematic um, uh, assault and attack on communities and that thousands and millions of people in our communities were experiencing it. I felt that um, I just, you know, wanted to make sure that this stopped. And that's when, that's when my dating turned into commitment. <laughs> that, that's when you tied the knot. Yes. I think it's incredible. I think it's incredible that that sense of personal fear um, drove so much of the work and I think has inspired others to not necessarily walk away from their fear because it's, it's something that most of us will never, will never truly understand. The sense of the people you love most being taken away from you and you have no power and no control and almost the exact opposite. If you do speak up, you put yourself and more people at risk. And so you know, that's something I'm never going to understand. I'm never, and, and I am in awe of, because I think to myself, as you were telling that story, okay, what would I have done? Knowing that I'm at risk, my family's at risk, my brother, et cetera. Would I have had the same courage that you did? Would I have, would I have had that courage? And I, I don't know the answer to that. And I, 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 I'm pretty sure as, as awful as it sounds, I don't think I would have, especially at 23. So I find, I find your sacrifice, I think, is probably the right word, um, as you've really led this to be incredible. And even when you were answering that, you mentioned several of, of the women who are part of your, your movement. And I find that um, just a reflection of your leadership, because I know over 70% of the members of United We Dream are women. And I believe 20, 26 or 25% identify as LGBTQ. 
Yes. So, and you've been very intentional about building this movement to be inclusive, to be accepting, to be engaging, intentional in a way, you know, not, not just, oh, we believe in diversity, but actually building it into the architecture of the movement. How have you done that? And how can we, how can every other movement learn from you? You know, we, um, I have to say that part of, um, uh, Part of what I have been reflecting on um, to your question is that when I look back at who were the people that made very courageous steps in the last couple of years to build our movement, I constantly go back to women and queer um, folks in our community who, you know, came up with ideas about our coming out actions um, when the stories of undocumented young people were not necessarily viral or part of the mainstream conversation. And, you know, a group of um, undocumented young people, some of them who were also queer, most of them women, um, and learning from the civil rights movement, from the, from the, um, from the movement uh, of the LGBTQ community, you know, they came up with this idea of our come of our coming outs, and um, and and there are moments like that when I think that it was always these folks with the lived experience of what it's like to be a woman and undocumented and a person of color in this country and and working class or poor and what does it mean to be. Um, you know, in the context of all of our lived experiences, what does it mean to bring our full selves into the work that we do? And every time those actions made our organization better. Um, I remember in one of our national convenings uh, for the first time actually having um, a 100% a, a queer led session for all of the participants when there was an invitation and an affirmation that we were a space for LGBTQ liberation and acceptance and, um, and affirming and inviting people to come out. And I just remember feeling um, the transformation that was happening in that moment where uh, many folks that have not shared that they were also queer um, and undocumented, uh, you know, came forward in this community and they were embraced and loved and, mm -hmm. um, and celebrated. Um, and so I'm, I'm lifting those up as just like, you know, two examples of how I think moments like that um, have actually created and made our, our space inclusive and safe and affirming for everyone to be their true authentic selves. Um, and I will say if there's any anything that, you know, for folks that are um, hearing in our conversation, if there's anything that you can take away for like, how is it done? Um, you know, I will say that it's like basically about centering the work on the people most directly impacted by injustice or, um, you know, systems of oppression. And when you center those people in your spaces, in your organizations, in, in, um, in anything that you're doing, um, transformation will happen organically. Um, it will push the space um, to be more inclusive, to be grounded, um, 
and to be a space where there's a space, you know, where people can uh, be their true authentic selves. And so for me, the biggest takeaway has been as an organization, it's not only about who the leaders are, but also who our members are. And, you know, our model is that um, our members are the drivers of key decisions of mm -hmm. our organization, who we are, what our mission is, what our priorities are, what our mission is. You ever, are you ever surprised that it is so difficult for most organizations to center those most impacted? I mean, the vast majority of organizations don't operate that way. They don't, you know, they talk about women's rights or um, health access or um, homelessness or, you know, pick a subject. And yet the people who are on the executive team, the people around the board, don't often look like the communities that they're talking about the most. Um, and it's, you know, it's come up a lot in kind of development circles, international development, particularly this year, kind of that embedded white supremacy in the system itself. So does it ever surprise you how, how kind of organic it seemed for your organization, but how much difficulty everybody else seems to be having with it? Um, you know, I will say that um, it, it definitely, I think, has to do with um, a lot of, uh, you know, systematically, uh, a lot of our systems and institutions have been designed to um, not center uh, the voices and the experiences and the lives of people directly impacted by injustice or the problems. And for United We Dream, it was actually not just a value, is being one of our greatest sources of strength and power. And we pride ourselves in the fact that that is a central value for us. So um, it doesn't surprise me that it's difficult. I quite frankly feel that um, for institutions that are say that they are trying to be diverse, um, you can say whatever you want. My question is like, what are the actions? What are you disrupting in your organization or your institution to make that happen? Are you hiring people in leadership and manager roles that uh, you know, are impacted, that represent communities that come from the community? Um, at United We Dream, like most of our staff come from our community. We actually mm -hmm. develop young people into organizers, advocates, leaders, communicators, everything that you see at United We Dream from like a graphic to a social media post to people who design our t-shirts. Um, all of them are people from our community. And so to me, I think it's, I don't believe it's hard. I believe that people do not want to actually make the change. Yeah. And I think we really need to confront the fact that people don't, do not like and feel uncomfortable we're giving up power. And in many institutions and organizations, you know, people have grown to be very comfortable with being in leadership, even if you don't represent that community. Mm -hmm. um, and um, the reason why you can try so hard <laughs> to, to change that, but not achieve it, it's quite frankly, not because you're out of tools. Um, that's not to say that, you know, I don't believe in the need of trainings and hiring people, like all of those practices are important and must be done. But I think ultimately there's a fundamental question about power yeah. and that a lot of people don't want to give up that power. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm, we've, we've talked uh, in, in past interviews about the importance of reframing a rights conversation to a power conversation. Um, because it, it sounds like we're, 
you know, when we talk about, okay, well, women's rights or immigrant rights or, um, you know, ensuring the, the, the protection of undocumented immigrants and the dignity, people make it seem like, seem like it's, it's a kind of a, a question of, okay, well, we'll give and, you know, we'll, we'll compromise and we'll agree. And those are all wonderful, but it negates the fact that there's a huge power infrastructure that really is the foundation for so much of this. And if we don't talk about that, we can have as many protests, as many marches, as many petitions. But if we don't talk about really that institutional framework that negates the rights of people, then it's very difficult for us to realistically create sustainable change. And you're, you're someone I think who knows this better than anyone. I mean, you work in a space where the urgency behind the issue is so critical. And you've been working in this space over the course of three presidents. I mean, from Bush to Obama, now Trump, you've experienced firsthand um, the, the increase of deportations, um, despite the fact that this is becoming more of a global conversation, a national conversation, deportations have increased. The, the lack of clarity, I think, is, is probably um, around what the the role of law enforcement when it comes to undocumented immigrants, the, the rights that of undocumented immigrants, the lack of clarity, it's only become more cloudy. So how do you not only continue the work, um, you know, through these three different presidents, Republican and Democrat, um, where you're still facing the same challenge, but what do you define as success? You know, I feel like that to, um... So this question is ultimately, you know, something that I, I feel like it's somewhat linked to what we just talked about, which is that in my lifetime as someone who is um, working to make our country better, to make the world a better place, I have witnessed the track record that every time people directly impacted by an issue or by a system or injustice, every time they are the ones in leadership and driving the strategy and driving solutions. There's a breakthrough. And you can look at not only how immigrant youth have done that and immigrants have done this in the context of the conversation of, you know, about immigration in this country, but also when you look at the Me Too movement, right? Women that experience directly, um, abuse and our survivors, like they were the ones speaking up and leading the work. Mm -hmm. The same thing that you see in the movement for black lives. So um, so I, I have seen success when um, these communities are the ones that are leading the solutions and the breakthroughs. And the success is that there's an improvement in people's lives. Mm -hmm. So when there is, when people can feel that they have protection from deportation, when people can feel um, that they could have access to healthcare in the conversation of, you know, Medicare uh, for all people, um, that's when you are seeing that there are improvements in, in people's lives where I feel like from a practical perspective, there's a success. But I will say, you know, one more thing to your question that in the last years of doing this work, um, and it's been long and it's been arduous and it's been, um, it's come with a lot of sacrifices. I have gotten to definitely um, believe in the importance of policy wins 
that improve people's lives. And I have become even more committed to more transformational and cultural change and political change. And what that means is that for me, success will be the day where a boy or girl um, who has an immigrant experience does not have to feel ashamed for it. Of children who are refugees or families who are refugees do not have to feel ashamed of that. Where they don't have to feel that their safety and their life is in danger, that they will be targeted because they are, you know, um, refugees um, and are immigrants. So I imagine a place and dream of a world where people could live safely. Um, and without fear and thrive. And not only in the US, but you know, as you were saying, um, the reality is that more and more people are will continue to be pushed out from where they live because of climate change and other reasons. And mm -hmm. I, I, I dream of, of that kind of world. And you know, that, that will be success to me if we can create that level of um, cultural and political transformation. A recent example would be the lack of charges on the cops who shot Breonna Taylor, despite the fact that we were we are at the height, really, of the Black Lives Matter movement, of people protesting, of people marching, of kind of this global consciousness on um, police brutality and Black lives, and yet it's not translating to that to that accountability, to that policy. How do we get there? Where is that? How do we get there? Um. You know, I think that what what um, what these movements are creating are definitely, as you were referring to, cultural moments that are shifting things. Like for the first time um, in I think uh, many years, the country and the world is having a conversation about white supremacy. <laughs> it's having a conversation about the history of policing in communities. It's having, quite frankly, a conversation about how, for the last years funds for policing and law enforcement like ICE agents in the context of immigration have radically increased while the funding for schools and hospitals and community centers have dramatically be, been decreased and defunded um, in extreme ways. And this has been happening, but we haven't had a conversation about it. So I think it's about harnessing these moments that we're creating for a massive awakening of people. Um, and you know, a lot of people within my own family or close circle of friends are having now conversations that we were not having um, a couple of years back. And the way that we harness that into material change to communities is harnessing those stories and the power of protest and that cultural power to turn it into policy, to turn it into who's making those decisions. And you know, this is why, for example, one of the clearest examples that we're living through in this moment is the harnessing of social movements um, into ele changing electoral power. So you see you know, the climate justice movement with organizations like Sunrise led by young people that came out boldly demanding a Green New Deal for this country. Um, you, and you are seeing the clear demands from the movement for Black Lives around um, defunding the police and investing in Black communities 
And you've seen the, the demands in the immigrant justice movement, which are saying abolish ICE, you know, let's end this system that is profiting from the death um, and the detention of immigrants um, and invest in our communities. So all of, you know, all of these demands are translating into how our movements are endorsing candidates that are supporting our platforms um, and mobilizing the vote for those candidates to be elected so that we're kicking out racist politicians <laughs> across the country, whether that's a sheriff or an attorney general or a member of Congress. And I think mm -hmm. that recent victories, like um, the ones from um, Jamal Bowman in New York, or even um, the Senate race with you know Merkley, um, mm -hmm. and um, women like Ocasio-Cortez and Ilhan Omar getting elected into office all of those are reflections of how movement are leveraging their protest power, their power in mobilizing and organizing communities into actually changing the dynamics of power. And that it's, you know, I think one of the clearest examples um, right now. I think it's an incredible example because I think, um, and it's something I say to so many people who are engaged in this work and excited about this work, um, Honestly, we need people in you know to march, but we also need people in spaces of traditional power. That's how we shift them. And and you know, for every Christina Yemenes, there's going to be an Ocasio Cortez, um, and those two things are incredible together because it means you shift global consciousness and consciousness in communities, and you create safe and dignified living for undocumented immigrants. But you also have somebody in those spaces of power who can institutionalize that. Uh, and, and so that partnership, I think, is something that uh, I'm so excited about the movements of today for really beginning to emphasize. And, and I think in the same way you mentioned kind of training and supporting your team um, to really be leaders, members of your own community to be these leaders, the fact that we're looking into our communities and saying, okay, who can run for office? Who can represent us, I think, is, is a sign that, um, that a lot of communities are looking at power in a much more strategic way, which I'm very excited about. Now, you know, I, I come from a family of Muslim immigrants, and I remember, you know, you mentioned 9-11 earlier, and it was particularly because um, I remember just kind of the fear and terror. Um, and, and I think, you know, one thing that I've recognized um, is that people really, people really try to take, I think, dignity away from immigrant communities. If I had to, this, this idea that you are deserving of a dignified life, of a, of a human existence, how have you preserved dignity and pride within your own community for yourself, within your community mobilizing? How have you centered that as, as not a privilege, but a right? You know, I think um, the one of the one of the most powerful examples of that it's what are what have been the acts of reclaiming that humanity and reclaiming um, reclaiming our lives and our voices because everybody everything around us like whether they're a politician or an institution is telling us that we don't belong that we do not have rights, that we need to keep our head down. And, you know, for immigrants, this is always the case. Keep your head down, stay quiet, work hard, and you'll get by and you'll get through. And, you know, it will keep you out of trouble. And um, and I do feel like it's, it's moments where, you know, courageously young people, and at least in our movement, 
uh, and immigrants across the country have shared their stories. There's power um, in, in your story. Um, and that actually has been transformational for many of us. So even like the perhaps the simple act that we may think about of storytelling is actually healing, is transformational. Uh, it brings a lot of relief to many of us, but it also creates a deep sense of solidarity and being able to see um, us in, in other people and make the connections. Uh, even if we were, you know, we're so divided as uh, even as immigrants, when we think about like, well, you're from this country or that country, and you know, those countries are not friends with each other. Um, and I feel like there's just so much that it's like put in our heads about like, you know, being divided. Uh, but when we share our stories, I have found there's so many things that we find in common. There's like moments of solidarity that become crystal, crystal clear for many of us that builds a sense of community. Um, and that um, even though I may not be from the same country, I may not speak the same language, uh, our skin color may not be the same, um, but we have experienced that fear or we have experienced that particular challenge. Um, you know, when you talk to young people, wherever they come from, what they have, what they share with us constantly is that they've been bullied in school because they're immigrants, because of their accent, because of how their parents dress, because of the food that they eat. And, um, and, regardless of where you come from, that is an experience that brings all of us together yeah. in some way um, and, and, and brings a lot of actually healing and transformation um, to our own communities that then I think we shift into, into pride. Yeah. Um, and you know, that's why in United We Dream, was, a lot of our chants are about being queer and unashamed, being an immigrant and being proud and being immigrant and unafraid and, you know, these are all of the things that um, that we work on to move from a place that's been so ingrained within our spirits and our heads um, that we don't belong and that there are many reasons to be ashamed um, mm -hmm. and turn them into actually, um, you know, reclaiming our humanity and being proud of where we come from and, and who we are. I think that's so powerful. And, and I think your, your comment on how storytelling is, is a way to create solidarity and, and a way to mobilize um, is, is incredible because it's, it's true. I mean, a lot of, you know, United We Dream is a wonderful example of how telling your own personal story mobilized millions and, and continues to mobilize them. Now, you know, one, I think, thing has been true in kind of our shared global history, and that is that um, immigrants have always had a somewhat tenuous place in society. Um, you know, whenever something happens, even if they're undocumented immigrants, especially, but even documented immigrants um, after an event, after, you know, World War II or 9-11, et cetera, um, tend to be deported. There's this sense of, of expendability. Um, and oftentimes when people want to prove the value of immigrants, they prove it economically. Mm. It's like, oh, no, 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 you know, they're doctors, they're, they're uh, economists, they're lawyers, engineers, they're professionals, they're coming in as though the value is inherent to their ability to contribute to the economy and not inherent in their actual human self. And I wonder, how do you, how do you grapple with that reality? Because it does actually shift people's opinion, right? And, and so it's, a, it's a definitely a lever to use. But, but how, do you, how do you grapple with, with that reality of, of that being part of the advocacy? Mm. I mean, I think that, um, you know, in, 
it, it is so important to make sure that we continue to push for a radical change and um, valuing people only because of their labor. And, um, and quite frankly, in the context of COVID, we have seen that how some lives are not valued, even because of their labor. When I think about farm workers that have been, you know, risking their lives, still working to keep this country fed and with food, while many of us are like quarantining and staying home, they are taking a risk every day to make sure that we have produce and food at our table. And the fact that they are doing this without the proper equipment, without proper wages, without healthcare, also shows us that even when we know that these workers as a country are making sure that we have food on the table, not even because of that self-interest of making sure that you have food at the table, does it make it so that their lives are valued? Um, and so um, it, it is a sad state of society, quite frankly, but I think that it's important to be sober about that and face it and acknowledge it and continue to push so that we are valued because we are human beings and equally to other human beings. Um, and I think that the truth is that both are true, like immigrants are lawyers and are doctors and they're, you know, um, bringing um, amazing solutions to different problems of society and contributing to our communities in many ways. And it is also true that despite of those contributions, um, we are worthy of dignity. We are worthy of um, a life without fear. We are worthy of rights in the workplace. Um, and we are worthy of having opportunities to accomplish our dreams. And you know, one of the things that I have really been thinking about is that I want that to be true for our own communities. It is so, um, it is so important to acknowledge that we have been told that we're not worthy for so many years mm -hmm. and generations of experiences of colonization and migration and genocide that I feel often that that kind of revolution in thinking and in, in, in liberation and self-love needs to happen in our communities first. A hundred percent. We need to believe it first. I and you, both of us and, you know, and people in our community must believe and get to a point of truly believing that we are worthy. And if we believe that ourselves, I think that the work to get other people there mm -hmm. accelerates. Mm -hmm. So, you know, to me, I, I think, I, I often think about the importance of the work that I do, not just of trying to get non-immigrants to support our work, but actually to get immigrants themselves in their communities uh, and people of color to, to love ourselves and to really believe that we're worthy. So I, I often talk with my mom who, you know, immigrated to Canada in her late teens, um, you know, was married, had several kids uh, and, you know, often talks about the experiences she had, you know, really kind of growing up in the Canadian prairies um, and, and, and kind of really the, the most conservative pocket of Canada um, and, and raising a family of 11 children and being visibly Muslim and really what that looked like. And so when we do talk about, okay, you know, self-love within the immigrant community or self-actualization. She, she often tells me that's a generational thing. Mm 
you know, that you have the privilege of self-actualization. She just had the responsibility to survive. And I, I find it to be the most humbling experience because it often makes me wonder about the sacrifices of those who came before us. Even now, when, when I complain about the systems that exist, these are the best reflection of the systems. This is after blood, sweat, tears. This is after everything from, from immigrant communities before has gone into it. Um, we are inheriting the very best the system has been. And so, so what do you think, I think that, you know, kind of with that in the back of, of our minds, how do we, not ingrain, but how do we inspire maybe self-love or, or self-worth in our communities? How do we, how do we move from that, that instinct of just survival to we deserve more? We don't just deserve to work for someone. We deserve to own things. We deserve to own a house. We deserve to own a company. We deserve to, you know, feel comfortable taking a day off. We, we deserve this. How do we move from from proving our, our value to just knowing it. You know, I think that um, we, um, we need, um, you know, cultural transformation and we need systems to be abolished and new systems to be created uh, because ultimately um, people need to have the material conditions and, you know, by, by that I mean how could you stop feeling like you're always in a survival mode if if you don't have access to healthcare? If right now you are worried that um, you are going to get evicted because you are unemployed because of COVID and you um, cannot pay for rent, um, how could you stop living out of survival um, when you don't have um, rights in the workplace when you're an you know undocumented worker? Um, whether you're a farm worker or in anywhere in the food supply chain. Um, so I, I think that the reality of our communities is that um, there are, you know, systems that have by design uh, created the way, the conditions in which we live right now. And I find movement moments whether that is the murder of Trayvon Martin, like, you know, seven plus years ago, uh, that sparked um, uh, the, the movement um, that we are seeing now reflected being on the streets uh, led by the, you know, by the organizers from Black Lives Matter, um, or whether there are the recent moments that we have gone through um, with the wildfires in California, um, or um, the murder of Breonna Taylor, that these are moments where we can really seize opportunities to create transformation and understanding in our community that wasn't there before. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I have experienced that with like my own parents who, you know, grew up believing that police is there to keep us safe. And so, you know, how could you like then have an opposition, opposition to policing? But as they have seen what's happening, as they have like watched the news about what's happening, as I've had conversations during dinner with them to share like, oh my God, look at how the New York City budget has grown. Look at how our schools have been defunded. So, but all of these conversations are happening because of these movement moments. I have seen transformation in my own family um, and in my own, you know, with my own parents that I think 
uh, ultimately get us to places of not only um, understanding and acknowledging like the things that we got to do to survive right now, but also to aspire for better things and to be able to show people what's possible. You know, and I, I know that for my own parents, it's been such an uh, you know awakening moment to see people showing up in the streets for Black Lives Matter um, and them like joining protests and holding signs and feeling like there is hope in people taking action. There is hope in the fact that we're having a conversation on topics that quite frankly were not talked about before. There is hope in the fact that, you know, many um, Latino communities are finally having a conversation about anti-Blackness and that there's finally more conversation about how Afro-Latinos exist in our community. And I think that all of those things are ultimately all coming together to give people a sense of hope. And as they are seeing change, a sense that, you know, not only we deserve better, but also it can happen. Mm -hmm. That it's that that possibility is actually out there. So what is what are some of the questions that we should be asking ourselves that we're not, um, you know, and those in our own families, those around us about how we approach the subject of undocumented immigrants? I think that one of, you know, I'm trying to think about like the uh, what will what will be that for my own family? Um, you know, a lot of what a lot of the research tells us is that you know there is almost like intentional like um, forgetting <laughs> of um, being an immigrant, and so you know um, many people who actually serve in institutions of power right now um, are you know were part of the Irish and German uh, migration in the history of this country. How many of them actually think of themselves as coming from immigrant backgrounds or even valuing that in their own experience and or looking back at their parents or their grandparents and saying how proud I am of their immigrant struggle and their resiliency and the courage that it took to you know, travel to a new place and adapt and build a new life. Um, and I think that that is also by design because <laughs> uh, I did not learn about the rich history of uh, immigration, but also the very dark history of slavery and the genocide of Native American people in high school. I did not. Uh, I got a completely different version of <laughs> the story of our country. So I think that um, when I think about this question, I'm thinking about like, what are the things that as a country are important for us to remember? And what are the things that are also important for us to face um, and, and really be sober um, about um, the sin of slavery, about the sin of the genocide of um, you know, Native American people, about the fact that there were many people, particularly in the Southern and the Southwest region of the, of the country where uh, they did not cross the border, the, you know, the, it was crossed for them um, when Texas became the U.S. and it was actually Mexico before. So I think um, all of those things are important for us to have conversations about because I think it will bring us back to remembering the history of migration, remembering that 
people were either forced to come here to be slaves or people have historically come here seeking a better life and that there were also people here um, many actually connected to different indigenous tribes and, na and native people of southern parts of the continent um, so i you know i think all of those are important starters conversations um, for our own communities to have because i do think that that will help us not only get to this place of uh, you know, acknowledging and valuing ourselves, uh, regardless of the of the labor or economic contributions. But I think it could also be a powerful tool or bridge for solidarity with the new immigrants that are coming and the new immigrants that will continue to to come. Yeah. No, I I think the power of education and information is something that we often overlook. Um, I remember about a week or two ago, a statistic came out that I think it was like 60% of people in the U.S. Um, don't know about the Holocaust. Or, and and I'll, I'll try to get that exact percentage. But, and I remember feeling shocked. Like this, it hasn't even been, you know, two, three generations. Um, and it's one of the most catastrophic events in our human history. And our ability to, to I like I say, you know, willful forgetfulness. Um, I think is tied into this, this idea that we then just end up replicating a lot of these same actions because we don't know our own histories. So I think the power of history, both as a tool for education and mobilization, um, but also accountability can be incredible for us. So I have two more questions for you, Christina. Um, my first, you know, we've spoken a little bit about how you build an inclusive movement and how you have built an inclusive table, but what does being at the table mean to you? You know, I always say that nothing about us should happen without us. And that means uh, creating our own tables sometimes. Um, that means coming to the table, even if there is no chair for you and like forcing yourself in and bringing more people with you uh, to make sure that, you know, you have the majority <laughs> uh, and more representation in that table for decision-making. Um, and so for me, what it has meant is um, if I am at a table and in many places we have had to create tables, um, you know, for, for United We Dream, I think it was, it was so important to disrupt the way in which immigrant em, immigration advocacy was happening, mainly led by non-impacted people. Um, that for us, the biggest disruption was actually create a table where impacted people were coming together and then saying like, no, this is our experience and this is what we believe policy change should look like. And this is our strategy and this is how we're going to do it. Um, but I think that the important thing to realize when you are at a table, when you create tables and are bringing people together um, is that one, you need to bring more people um, with you. Um, because whether we like it or not, you may have been on the other side of being the gatekeeper, but once you are at the table, you are a gatekeeper. Um, and realizing how we, in many instances, are playing the roles of gatekeepers. Um, and so using that as a responsibility, quite frankly, once you are at the table, um, you are responsible for bringing more people in. And like, that's the way, you know, I've done it when I am invited to join um, boards of different institutions or when I'm invited to speak 
uh, not only I bring the stories and the experiences of our members and our community, but I'm also always thinking about like, when do I bring the next person and let me introduce you to this other person and, and let me recommend these other women um, to, for this other opportunity. Um, because I think that the more of us at the table, the merrier. And once we make, you know, make it into those tables, that's our responsibility to, to open the doors um, for, for more people. 100%. And, you know, first, thank you very much for coming to, to this little table we've created. Um, I, I find your leadership to be an incredible role model um, and an incredible, you know, not a blueprint almost for, for so many people who are thinking, okay, how do I um, amplify the agency that exists in my community? How do I change the narrative around, you know, what my our, our worth, our dignity, our power, um, our rights, and and I, I just I think it's incredible, and I think you know there are not enough um, accolades really to cover. I think what you what you've done and, and the leadership that you bring. Now at this table, what is one thing that you would like to leave our community with? It can be a book, a quote, an idea, a person, a moment. It can be anything. Um, but what is one thing that we we can all take away? I think one thing I would love to um, remind people um, in, in this table and in this community is that we are worthy. Do not believe the lies, the lies that you don't belong, that you're not worthy, that you're not enough. Um, we are worthy, we are enough, and um, we can also do things to change that when we see that that's not happening, when we see that the lies are, you know, manifesting themselves through systems, through policies, through institutions, uh, we do have the power to change that. Thank you. Um, we are worthy. I think a lot of people will be, will be really reflecting on so much of your work, your experience, um, and the fact that we don't, we don't need anything other than ourselves to show up and to demand better. So thank you so much for joining us, Christina. It, it's been such an honor. So wonderful to share space with you and to have the conversation. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you have an awesome day. Amplify our important message by leaving a review or subscribing. Collaborate with us to encourage more people to shout for change. And be on the lookout. We have more episodes coming soon and I can't wait to share them with you. From At The Table, I'm Dr. Lambert. Thank you for joining us.